is all. Last time on The Spectator, we introduced Joliet gambling boss Francis Curry, who mysteriously secured Chicago outfit leader Paul Rica's parole after his imprisonment for a failed effort to bribe Hollywood studios in 1948. Curry went on to become the chief suspect in the near-fatal beating of Molly's mentor, Bill McCabe, and later, her own disappearance. Just because. We also told you about the McClellan Committee hearings of the late 1950s, where rising political stars Jack and Bobby Kennedy painstakingly made attempts to tie the Teamsters Union to organized crime. Bobby Kennedy, in particular, engaged in heated verbal battles with mafia and labor figures called before the committee, resulting in lifelong vitriol between the Kennedys and these factions. From the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library, this is The Spectator. The chances are your chances are Throughout the McClellan Committee hearings, Bobby Kennedy, especially, garnered charges of ruthlessness in provocative exchanges with Jimmy Hoffa, and this one, with newly installed head of the Chicago mob, Sam Giancana. Perhaps the committee's greatest legacy was introducing the concept of pleading the fifth to the American lexicon. Tell us about the vice operations down in Lake County, Indiana. The client answer because I honestly believe my answer might turn incriminating. Uh, would you tell us uh, whether if uh, you have opposition from anybody that you dispose of them by having them stuffed in a trunk? Is that what you do, Mr. Gene Connor? The client answer because I honestly believe my answer might turn incriminating. Will you tell us anything about any of your operations? Or you just uh, like, giggle every time I ask you a question? The client answer because I honestly believe my answer might turn incriminating. I thought only little girls giggled, Mr. Gene Connor. <laughs> At the height of the McClellan Committee hearings, hope for Molly's ultimate whereabouts began to dwindle as the months passed. Suddenly, in early 1958, newspapers buzzed with an apparent confession from an inmate in Stateville Penitentiary, at that time located just outside of the Joliet city limits on Old Route 66. This confession not only got the attention of Bobby Kennedy, it caused him to visit Joliet to physically search for Molly. Well, you can't talk about Bobby Kennedy without talking about uh, James Reney, who was dubbed the Green Hornet. That had a lot to do with uh, how he would sneak in and out real quick, stealing things from uh, different places, because uh, he was a small-time hood, robbery and burglaries. But he also was involved in uh, being muscle for the mob at times. I'll start with him, because he's the guy that got Bobby Kennedy into uh, Will County. Reney uh, was in and out of prison and in and, and, uh, 1958, he was in Stateville, and this was uh, the year following Molly's disappearance. And he decided to tell the FBI that he knew where Molly was buried. In fact, he was involved in actually killing her. Uh, as I said, he was involved in being muscle, uh, and he knew where she was buried, he said. He let the FBI know this. And of course, the FBI turned around and passed this on to Bobby Kennedy, who was the chief counsel for the Rackets Committee at the time. So Bobby Kennedy was uh, kind of on a a mission, an obsession with chasing down and and finding connections uh, that involved the mob in anything, including labor unions. And and he was very interested in gambling issues, which, of course, was a big, big deal for Molly and McCabe at The Spectator. Jimmy Reney, a.k.a. apparently the Green Hornet, 
likely a self-appointed nickname given his well-documented history of aggrandizing his own accomplishments, if you want to call them that, was the personification of the phrase two-bit hood. Following Molly's disappearance, Rini, who was doing time for robbery in 1958, along with cohort Alex Ross, were brought before the McClellan Committee, their hands shackled together after Rini bragged about his role in Molly's disappearance in a jailhouse interview to the Chicago Tribune. They had previously been implicated in attacks on both journalists and outfit rival jukebox and pinball owners. Their preferred method of attack was to douse their targets in highly corrosive acid. Amazingly, we were able to locate tapes of Jimmy Rainey from interviews he did with reporter John Conroy of the Chicago Reader, who did an extensive piece on Molly Zelko and later Rainey himself in the early 1990s. We could tell you what a terrible person Rainey was, but he appeared to have no qualms about doing that himself. I'm a criminal. You know that. <laughs> the Green Hornet. All the professional thieves, I met them in jail. The name Hornet used to be traveled all around the police department. I used to call them up before they knew who I really was and call them up to Hornet's truck. And I'm going to strike again tonight at Gold Coast District. Try to catch me. I never got caught in a bank robbery. Never did get caught. Years ago when I was robbing banks, things were different. They, you know, but now you can't rob a bank like you used to. I had the duct tape and I would just tie him up and walk out the bank and make nothing happen. Did you ever have to fire the gun? Well, yes. I had, I had what they call a shot-off shotgun. That's the time I shot the guy through the mouth with the pistol. My other partner shot the shotgun. Come on in, sweetheart. Here's my wife. She's going to leave right away. I married five times legally. I robbed the church, St. Saint, Saint, uh, Paul. Yeah. So there, everybody's against me because you rob churches, everybody's against you. If my mother and father was living, they would have, they would have, they would have disowned me because my father and mother was very, very strict Catholic. But I was where the money was. <laughs> <laughs> I did a lot of things, John, and things that now I realized the things that I did were very, very, very wild. It would, today you would never last, you know, I would never last today. But if I did the things I did years ago, I never last. I mean, you wouldn't last. You get killed. You'd be. I would be. I would, they would kill me. The Green Hornet strikes again. So Rini is in Stateville. He he says, "Hey," uh, he tells the FBI, "Hey, I I was involved." And he tries to work out this deal with the FBI to uh, ease his sentence. And 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 he says he's willing to testify before the Rackets Committee. So Rini. Uh, passes on this information, it gets into Bobby Kennedy's uh, hands. So Kennedy and uh, his eight, his top agent, a guy by the name of McShane, who had an excellent reputation at the time, they, they come to Will County, they go to Stateville, they spend some time chatting with Rini, and they get to the point where they take him out. And uh, the warden at the time was the one that knew what was going on. Nobody else really did. They just know that Kennedy was a big deal and that he had kind of free reign of the prison. And so they take Rainey out. They take him. Uh, they follow his instructions and go to a nearby uh, a farmer's land. And John and I talked to the owners in 1978, and we stood uh, on the land. And you could see Stateville in the background, so it wasn't very far away. And so Kennedy and uh, McShane are digging holes wherever Rini points, and, and they have to dig relatively deep, and nothing, they find nothing. 
and that was the that's what happened. They absolutely found nothing. Now, Kennedy uh, kind of uh, blows it off as uh, being that this guy uh, lied to us, and this all came out in the press a short while afterwards. They did this in uh, 1958, November of 1958. So a short while later, it did come out in the Chicago media. And Kennedy always kind of felt like, and said that he always felt like Rini was kind of taking him uh, on a joyride uh, to nowhere. But he still felt that Rini still somehow may have known. It bothered him that, uh, that he didn't get everything he wanted from Rini. And Rini just joked about it with the media. He says, you know, they were hounding me. I uh, just thought, well, I think maybe I'll just take a little vacation out of Stateville. And he just he just made a game out of it, which Rini was kind of good at. And he also liked to brag about himself. So Rini says that it was just a joke. And, and, it, and it kind of ended there. Now, in Kennedy's reference in the book, he talks about how he got angry and everything. And uh, But Rini said uh, Kennedy was really angry at one point in time and actually smacked him in the head with a shovel. Kennedy describes what happens in his book. It's called The Enemy Within, but he only gives it a few paragraphs. He told us where to dig, and we dug. The farmer who owned the field came out from his house, and our prisoner friend warned us to be careful because the farmer knew about the murder. When the farmer asked us what we were doing, Jim McShane, ever resourceful, implied we were from the state of Illinois and hinted we were looking for a special kind of rare metal. After we had dug in vain for some time, the prisoner took us to another spot and said, she is definitely buried here. I was tired of digging. He swore he was telling the truth and blurted out this quaint oath. May I have syphilis of the eyes and may my mother be a whore if she isn't buried here. I knew little about the man's mother or his eyes, but Jim McShane and I both know, after hours of digging, that the woman's body was not there. At this juncture, the farmer came out again, this time with three very husky-looking sons, so we took off across the fields. Robert F. Kennedy, The Enemy Within. The timing and the circumstances surrounding Jimmy Rini's role in Molly Zelko's disappearance are compelling. During the summer of 1957, just weeks before Molly disappeared, the McClellan Committee cited, quote, a wave of acid-throwing and axe-wielding by hoodlums trying to push reluctant gaming machine operators into line. A third associate of Ross and Rini, Frank Mastari, was shot to death by a tavern owner who Mastari was waiting to ambush during this period. The tavern owner, Willard Bates, met the same fate just days later. On June 9th of 1958, Rini was identified as one of two men who entered the offices of the Edison Norwood Review and demanded to know the whereabouts of its editor, Edward Scholl, after the newspaper, like the Spectator, ran an expose on pinball rackets. It was openly speculated by Bobby Kennedy that Rini, Ross, and Mastari were hired muscle on behalf of the Chicago Independent Amusement Association, a seemingly legitimate arm of the Chicago outfit's coin-operated machine interests. In September of 1958, Rini himself was attacked and stabbed multiple times by three assailants whom he refused to identify. Rini was convicted shortly thereafter and sent to Stateville for his role in smashing machines, except for this temporary reprieve from Bobby Kennedy in November of 1958. Rini is filled with stories about his life of crime, shamelessly recounting every detail to reporter John Conroy in 1993. For his significant moral failings, Rini is a confident storyteller. Listen as he fondly recollects his first bank robbery. Gary, Indiana. They call it Glen Park. It's a little suburb of what they call a branch bank out of Gary, Indiana. And uh, we walked in. I had a girl in the car, and I had another guy with me. And uh, we walked right in and announced this as a stick-up. I went to the president. She was an old lady sitting at a table. 
and she had a button that burger, you know, and I says to her, I said, I called her a mama. I said, Mama, if you press that button, we're all going to die here. So she took her chair and moved away. Mm-hmm. Scared. She didn't want to. She says, and we got to tell her, we got the money. We walked right out, jumped in the car. And I had the back seat was fixed that we could raise it up and get in the trunk of the car. In other words, they were looking for two guys and a woman. Never seen the two guys. They seen only the woman, and she had a baby, a little Johnny boy, her little baby son, and he was sitting in the you know in the front seat, and nobody paid attention. To him. They had road blockation, but we got we didn't go on the road. We went to another guy's house, went in his garage, closed the door, got the money, went down in his basement, we split it, and uh, then we started waiting for us. Then he. He took the, the the other guy took the gray uh the South Shore he used to have the South Shore. He went to Chicago, me and the girl. I stood in the back seat and the girl drove right through everything and we, we didn't have no problem. So different t- there's different ways a bank can be robbed and there's different ways to get away. You just can't uh, rob a bank and get on the highway because it's you know the state police and everybody was known about was a broadcast on the radio actually. But we never went on the road until two, maybe three, four hours later. We go in the garage or go in a restaurant or go in a hotel, a motel, whatever, and we split the money. And that, that, uh, that's how I got away with bank I never got caught in the bank robbery. Never did get caught. Reney continued to regale Conroy with story after story of his 75 years of a syndicate-linked criminal life, going into a similar level of explicit detail about his many jobs and nearly as many arrests and subsequent years in prison. His recall is tremendous. Jimmy, born in 1918, tells of leaving home at an early age without any education and immediately, almost instinctively, turning to crime. My father says one thing to me one morning. He was going to work and I was just coming in. He said to me, well, I see you don't want to go to school. I see you don't want to work. So I'm going to give you two choices. Either you go to work or hit the road. That's what I did. I hit the road. I was gone a couple of years, traveled all over, all oh, over, seen a lot of things, did a lot of things, burglarized every farmer house I can see. <laughs> see, the farmers on Sunday used to go to church. That's a known fact. Farmers go to church on Sundays. Uh-huh. And all you have to do is go by, drive by the house, and you'll see them get in their car and go to the whole family. When they leave, you make a, make a U-turn, go back and park in the be surprised if you find them houses. But uh, like I told you, I'm not, I'm not bragging. I'm not proud. Like any good braggart, Reenie is always quick to point out he's not bragging. He is equally enthusiastic about his moral indifference to activities like using a baby to conceal a getaway car, robbing farm families while they went to church, and even robbing the church itself. However, in contrast to the sharp memories and overall tone of nostalgia throughout the Reenie interview, when asked about Molly Zelko, he slowly sticks to the known talking points about the case, but immediately becomes defensive, argumentative, and oddly vague when recalling details about his role in the disappearance. How about Molly Zelko? Do you have any theories, or do you know, uh, why she got killed? All I know of, of her, she was a crusade against uh, syndicate. Francie Curry at that time was strong in Joliet. He was the boss. 
But it was he was the boss of Joliet, but he was taking orders from Chicago. Okay, he was had the slot machines, the gambling whorehouse, and everything. And she was trying to bust them by having the, the Joliet Police Department going after that. And they wanted to get rid of her. She was causing too much heat. Mm-hmm. So they somebody kidnapped her. And when she kicked the shoe off, and one shoe she had left on her feet, and one was at the curve of the car where they put her in the car. They claim, they claim that they they identified me because I bought two bags of lime and a shovel. So they figured me, my picture, to the Kennedy, that I, because the Kennedy uh, Federal was investigating because she was kidnapped. So the the, invest, the the investigators from from Washington D.C. James McShane, Bob Kennedy was a counselor. His brother was on the on the seat. That he was from Boston. He was a senator. And so far, they were. This is in '58 before Kennedy became uh, president in '60. So they kept bothering me, insisting that I that I kidnapped her with somebody else. They insisted on it that I was the one. Had you bought two bags of lime? No, no, no. The woman identified me that I was not the guy that bought the two bags of lime. Okay. That's that's honestly got true. I did not. When they took me to court, the judge says, we haven't got the body of Molly Zoko, so we can indict this guy for murder. We'll take his word that he kidnapped her, but we have no proof. We have the body. It's all it is, the circumstances of This guy's a nut. He wants to get out of jail. He wants to have Bob embarrass Bob and all that, and then that because Bob was pressing him to the Statesville Penitentiary. She was pressuring me to the warden. You know what I mean? Yeah. So now when they put that informer in my cell, yeah. he told me that that uh, that the warden to another source put me in your cell. So then we went into my act about, okay? okay? Rini goes on to claim he was only ever implicated in the case because he was misidentified purchasing quicklime and a shovel at a Joliet hardware store. He claims he was merely purchasing tools for a burglary because he was always smart enough to purchase his burglary tools locally lest he get arrested for carrying them with priors. Rini deflects from the subject in seconds when the first opportunity arises. At no time does he dispute he was in Joliet during Molly's disappearance, even though his home address was listed in the Old Town neighborhood of Chicago. It's curious that when it came to what would seemingly be the pinnacle of his criminal career, totally duping the federal government and one of the most prominent political figures of the 20th century with a bogus confession, Rini, for once, doesn't do much bragging about Molly Zelko. Rini's awkward recollections also run counter to detailed testimony he gave to the McClellan Committee in 1958 regarding his role in not only kidnapping, but murdering Molly Zelko. However, the confession was not made public until late 1959. In a page one article in October of that year, the Chicago Tribune reported that Rini, who they described as a, quote, jockey-sized crime syndicate hireling and reputed trigger man, gave closed-door testimony to the McClellan Committee, stating that he and two accomplices took Molly at gunpoint outside of her home and drove her to a farm outside of the Joliet city limits. Molly was then shot in the head inside the automobile and dumped into a hastily dug grave filled with quicklime. Rini stated he was driving the automobile. In addition to Francis Curry, 
Rini also named Frank Laporte and Willie Potatoes Dodano, cited by the Tribune as two high-ranking members of gambling operations of the syndicate as those who gave the orders. However, by 1959, when the initial confession was revealed in the Tribune, Rini said, quote, That confession of mine to Molly's murder was a lot of baloney. They kept asking me a lot of foolish questions, so I gave them a bunch of foolish answers. Rini claimed he was tired of being hounded by Kennedy and McShane, and, quote, So I brought up the Zelko thing. I figured if Kennedy and McShane got me three to five years, I'd be ahead before they found out my confession was all lies. Tribune reporter Robert Wiedrich, seemingly perplexed at Rini's strategy, asked him directly why he would name some of the highest ranking figures in the Chicago outfit. He replied, quote, I figured if I threw in a lot of big names at them, they'd eat it up that much more. Hell, I never saw Willie Dodano in my life. When the Tribune pointed out that it wouldn't do much good to have his sentence commuted by confessing to a murder, Rini snapped back, I know that, they were conning me and I was conning them. Pressing him further, pointing out that using the names of known outfit chiefs like Curry, Donato, and Laporte, even in jest, might cause him problems, Rini stated confidently, nah, they all know I'm crazy. Despite the clear holes in Rini's testimony, like the ruse to make Kennedy dig for Molly outside of Stateville, as well as naming Frank Mastari as the trigger man, despite the fact that he had been killed in the ambush on a rival jukebox owner months before Molly disappeared that we mentioned earlier in the episode. Kennedy told the Tribune he still felt Rini, quote, either participated in or had knowledge of Zelko's murder. The Tribune claimed Rini's testimony of Molly's murder, unknown to the public for a year, was, quote, the best kept secret of the Rackets Committee. It is also quite likely, like the holes he used to throw off Robert Kennedy, Rini intentionally placed holes in his account of what really happened to Molly Zelko. As I'm sure he would want us to tell you, the Green Hornet struck again. The moon was all aglow, and heaven was in your eyes. The night that you told me, those little white Reedy reflected on his legacy to Chicago Reader reporter John Conroy in 1994 after making a graphic analogy about the pleasure he received from performing his burglaries, or tricks as he called them. I mean, criminal-wise, I get the excitement of coming through a window or picking a lock or cutting a hole through it. That's my excitement. If I can beat you, if I can beat you, I'm satisfied. If I miss a trick, what they call a trick, I'm very aggravated. If I don't make a score, I muff it. If something goes wrong, I'm very, very, very upset about that. I want to be a success with anything I do in criminal. Does that make sense? Yeah. Rini was released from his 1958 burglary sentence on a civil rights technicality in the late 60s. But it appears that he was the type of criminal who thrived in prison. According to the Chicago Reader, his rap sheet showed that he was arrested in 1971, 75, 76, 78, and 83, returning off and on to prison. Even behind bars, he couldn't resist breaking the rules. Rini, ever industrious and braggadocious, went on to tell Conroy of his many hustles, as he referred to them, while in prison, among which was using his technical know-how to produce alcohol. I used to make it in there. I used to make it out of prune juice. I used to get prune juice. You can buy it in a can in the commissary. And I get yeast for bread. You can put that in the prune juice, sugar, raw potatoes, and ferment seven days later, and turn it into alcoholic. And how does that sound? How does that good. taste? Good. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. It's like alien. Yeah, it's good. Hair tonic. You know what I would? Hair tonic. 
You go to the barber shop, that's alcohol. But the inmates can get it off of the kitchen, off of the barber shop got it. They get it. But we used to have a guy steal it and put a little water in it and then bring it to my cell and we used to get drunk on the weekend. <laughs> you smell it. You smell like a whore when you get too drinking it because it's all odor in it. You know? God, Jimmy, that sounds terrible. Yeah, it does. It tastes terrible. Released from federal prison for the last time in 1986, Jimmy, the Green Hornet Reeny, burglar, arsonist, stick-up man, and at one time, confessed murderer of Molly Zelko, despite his nearly 40 documented arrests, is reported to have died in a Chicago-area nursing home in 2005, outside of prison walls, at nearly 90 years old. <laughs> I tell you, I did, the thing, though, I, I could go on and on and on and see this guy, she's He's going to write a 10,000-page book. The warden, Joe, Joseph E. Reagan, he used to tell visitors, I'd be sitting in the yard, and the yard was right in what they call State Madison, and, and that's the busy part of Statesville, where all the lines come through from the yard, going into the cell and all that. Thing. The warden used to say, you see that little guy over there? People would say, yeah, you know. says, he causes me more trouble and all my whole population of inmates here. Is he warned you to say he's very intelligent. This guy's very intelligent. He's prison wise, he's street wise, and he's otherwise. <laughs> That's what they warned you to tell the business. He's been telling me lies and I know it. There's no love in your eyes because they show it. Because every time I hold you in my own, you just lie. In his later years, when he was off the record, Jimmy Reney reportedly talked a lot about Molly Zelko, including directly to Lonnie Kane's partner at the Joliet Herald News, John Whiteside. He always teased, maybe someday I'll tell you what really happened. Next time on The Spectator, we told you about several people closely associated with the Molly Zelko mystery. Her mentor, Bill McCabe, Joliet gambling chief under the Chicago syndicate, Francis the Thin Man Curry, and confessed suspect, Jimmy the Green Hornet Reenie. We'll tell you a little more about Molly herself and the events leading up to the mild autumn evening of September 25th, 1957, the last time she was seen alive. Spectator is a project of the Joliet Area Historical Museum and Joliet Public Library. The podcast was produced by me, Greg Pierbolt, along with Joey Lieberman. Interviews were recorded by Keith Folk, head of the Joliet Public Library's digital media studio. Thanks to all our interviewees, Lonnie Kane, Lynn Lichtenauer, and Dennis Henrietta. Special thank you to Megan Millen, director of the Joliet Public Library, and a very special thank you to reporter John Conroy for providing archival material on Jimmy Reaney. So just as long as you